even with Arenado in the in the lineup, um, I still feel like things feel a little thin. Although the Tyler O'Neill development is really interesting to watch. I mean, he's homered in the first two games of the series. He's in like the 90th percentile in uh, both sprint speed and exit velocity, or something like that, which is pretty intriguing, right? And like the question was, how much contact was he going to make? I, I think the question might be, how much contact does he need to make to be able to have an impact? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould. Joined this week from here in Phoenix, friend of the show. Did I get that right? I think I think that's probably it. Friend of the first time, long time. First time? Well, no, not first time. Oh, no. Second time. Second time, long time, because the last time I learned all about player death, which was great, and how to speak cooler as a baseball writer. <laughs> I still can't believe you got such a kick out of that. I, I did. I really did. I, I like it. Um, that's Mike, the voice of Mike Farron, MLB Network radio host and Diamondbacks broadcaster here in Arizona. Uh, it's really a pleasure to talk to you. Great to uh, see you in person. All those things. Longtime friend, uh, second time guest on the podcast. And I guess, Mike, I just want to start uh, right off the top with... All right, if a fan asks you about what's going on with foreign substances in the game, what do you tell them? Um, it's complicated. Can you ever give a simple answer to anything that happens in baseball? This is the, I guess this is, it's wrong to ask. I, answer I, a question with a question, but. No, it's cool. I have one. Would you like a simple, simple explanation for something that happened in baseball? Sure. Okay. So um, let's see. Craig of the Pirates. It has the ball in his glove mm-hmm. and Javi Baez is running towards him, stops, turns around to run back towards home. Simple explanation. Touch first base. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think that is a simple explanation. All right. Do I get that one? Yeah. Okay. I think I think if we're to talk about foreign substance um um, the foreign substance debate in baseball, and really it isn't a debate. It's more like um, pitchers and hitters both want pitchers to have some sort of tack for feel for the ball, but but mm-hmm. hitters don't want pitchers to rub their nose in the rule and use something that increases the nastiness of their pitches. And that's basically what it is. Um, so I think that, you know, what what we're dealing with is, and I thought – um, Mike Schilt handled this really well in his post-game press conference the other day, just in like, you know, the, the old, well, the way I always heard it was bullfrog and rosin, right? Bullfrog sunscreen and rosin, you know, on your arm or whatever to touch a little bit of that to get tack. That's not, that's not something that the league is looking to crack down on. What they are is trying to crack down on, on, you know, like homemade stickum type stuff. So the things that make pitchers better. And so I think the pitchers better than they already are better than, you know, ever before. So I think, I think, I think that's a big part of it. And I think it's, um, I think as much as we want answers and we want to poke fun at, at Joe West because Joe West is involved in a situation like he wasn't in, in Chicago the other day when he, when he took Gallegos' cap, I do think that they're very much in an information gathering stage on that. And I I think if nothing else, we've seen that the league wants to be deliberate in these decisions. Um, And that's part of, I I believe, having an attorney be the commissioner 
and that's that's not said to be a pejorative or anything. As as the son of an attorney, um, I understand being deliberate. So, um, and and I also think that that's probably the right process in a lot of in a lot of ways. In that you want to make sure that you gather enough information so that you you're not missing anything when you come down and make a ruling. I uh, I've had it described sort of as a control group, and that maybe that was a more uh, more public seizure of something that will be studied, but might will probably won't result in anything beyond them knowing what was on the hat so that they have a greater detail as to what are the things out there. And, you know, a lot of baseballs have been um, collected. I know that the athletic reported that Trevor Bowers baseballs were, were, were collected from one game, but there's a lot more to that. I mean, the, the, the Cardinals, some of the Cardinals games have had baseballs pulled from, I, I'm sure almost every team. I mean, I imagine every team has had baseballs pulled just so that they can have some kind of knowledge and comparison. You're right. How do you know how much foreign substance is being used if you don't go and collect and compare against everything else? Yeah, I think that that's I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's you you, you have to know what's out there. You have to know what you're fighting against, right? And so, um, and I think you know, like the Bauer thing got a lot of attention because it's Bauer, and because right. um, there is a tendency for better or for worse to to uh, for him to draw a little bit of martyrdom from that, and you know, yeah. and feel like he's singled out in it, and. And I think it was more like if you actually follow what happened, it was a couple of reporters um, noticed that the balls were being taken out of play and, you know, tweeted it, you know, and and in some of them that were at the athletic and, you know, the athletic has a giant Slack channel. And so there I, I'm sure I, I can I don't know for a fact, but I can guess. I think with a reasonable doubt, and you know me, I don't like to like just throw stuff out there, but I would guess that right. that tweet went out, something was filed in the internal Slack channel. Ken Rosenthal found it interesting. Jason Stark found it interesting. They started going around to their sources at the league to try and figure out what was going on. And then they reported it. So it wasn't out to get anybody. And I think it was more like, okay, well, this is interesting. We'd heard this was going to happen. This is the first chance that we've noticed it. And it happens to be somebody high profile who also happens to have been someone who a spoke out against this several years ago. I mean, he was really the first one to speak out against it and B, Mm -hmm. somebody who saw his spin rates increase dramatically. And there was kind of this open question last year about like, is he, or isn't he, or did he find another way by shortening up his, arm path to all of a sudden add 300 rpm so like all of those things i think factored into it you uh work a lot with the diamondbacks obviously as a diamondbacks broadcaster pre and post game doing doing some of the games and and the diamondbacks were one of the first teams to have a humidor um because of the you know climate and because of the elevation just because of phoenix in general um, right after, I believe right after um, Coors Field got one for obviously the altitude and the situation there at Coors Field. Um, the Cardinals now have a humidor, um, which is interesting because the humidors in baseball are set for Missouri. So they have a humidor <laughs> in Missouri set for Missouri. Um, that's that's the, the climate control in, in Coors Field is set for not too far from Washington, Missouri, which is right outside of St. Louis. Um, he, in your conversation with both pitchers and hitters, what in Arizona has been kind of the need to get tack on the ball? I mean, is that something that is on their mind, both, I mean, for control, for action, for, I mean, do, do they talk about it? And has that been something here? It's not something that I've, I've really noticed. Uh, I mean, I think 
some of the discussion came to the slickness of the ball immediately thereafter. And I think, you know, I talked to, um, you know, some former pitchers here who, you know, really felt like things dried out at times. And um, I, I really have never gotten a good answer on, you know, what you need for tack from one of the current players or how much they felt like there, there's not a whole lot of turnover from the pre-humidor to the post-humidor era, even though the, the yeah. humidor first came in here in 2018. So um, I think there's, there's that to it, but I think some of that was overplayed as well. I think the bigger issue, at least with regards to the humidor in Arizona is similar to what happened at, at cores. It's just, it wasn't as noticeable in Arizona because you're 4,000 feet closer to sea level. There, there's yeah. no humidity, like the relative humidity in Phoenix is the lowest of any of the teams, but it's also at the second highest elevation of any ballpark. And so, more than anything, Humidor, I think, was a better evaluative tool in an effort to try and, and you know, make sure that, that the ballpark played fair. And I think if you look at, if you really want to nerd out and look at the park effects, and I think, I think you know, the, the stuff that Baseball Savant has put out recently pretty much supports this, that it went from a pretty extreme hitters park to a pretty balanced park. Um, and so that's been, you know, that's been one of the changes, I think, more than anything, is that it's, it, it's basically followed everything that the baseball physicists like Dr. Alan Nathan from, from University of Illinois have said was going to happen, was like, this is going to suppress home runs significantly. And, um, you know, we're coming off what an 8-6 ball game last night. Um, you know, normally an 8-6 ball game in Phoenix would have had like four or five home runs. I think there were, what, two, right? So, like, it, it's a little bit – I mean, things have changed a little bit. I think it's really noticeable compared to the first two seasons that, that I worked here. One of those home runs was on a cutter inside that probably may have hit, like, Nolan Arenado's back foot. That was uh, – have you – that was a remarkable home run. Did you, uh, Madison Bumgarner said after the game it was the single best at bat anyone's ever taken off of him? Yeah, yeah. Eight pitch at bat, fouled several off, um, you know, fouled a curveball after seeing cutter after cutter after cutter. Mm-hmm. And then that, that pitch just veers in on him. Uh, Nolan, after the game, said that he felt he got lucky. And that he wasn't sure how he did it either. Um, <laughs> Bumgarner was like, Bumgarner afterwards, this is like, there were a lot of things that I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. He was like, there was a lot of things that he was upset about with his performance last night. That wasn't one of them. He was like, no, that was, that. like, you know, yeah. Yeah. No, the walks, you know, everything I, you, you mentioned that like, look, you know, it seems like pitchers have every advantage in the game right now. I mean, it's pitchers have never been better. I mean, you can make the argument that athletes in baseball have never been better and a lot of the athletes are now pitchers, yes. and so that's what's causing this. Do you do you think baseball should actively seek a correction to move the needle back towards offense, or let it evolve? Um, it's a good question, and I waver on some of it. I mean, I think there are a couple of things that you could do really easily that wouldn't really um, disrupt the tenor of the game um, that would that would potentially impact it. So roster limits on pitchers, which were supposed to come in in 2020, but um, I don't know if you know this, but 2020 ended up being kind of a strange year. Um, so yeah. limiting the number of pitchers that you can have on a roster and they were going to limit it at 13. And really I would, I would take that personally. I think I would take that down to 11. So then you're, you're starting to talk about pitchers having to go m- multiple innings and um, relievers having to go multiple innings and, 
and you're probably losing some of the max effort. I think you can make some adjustments to the strike zone. You know, the, the strike zone, the bottom of the strike zone only ever adjusted once in baseball history. Mm-hmm. And that was in the 90s during the steroid era. That was actually the last time that the strike zone changed. And I think we're into now the second longest period without a strike zone adjustment in Major League history. Mm-hmm. Um, That's my opinion. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, you know, you could adjust that up or they've always tinkered with the top of the strike zone. So since we're in a high fastball era really they could they could take and lower that you know um you shrink the strikes on a little bit pitchers are the loud i i do feel like the pitchers that are um are the ones who will raise issues more significantly and they are the ones who will fight back against change and and understandably so they're the ones that are holding the ball right that all starts Mm -hmm. starting pitcher or all starts pitching so i think that's one other thing you could do and the third one would be the pitch clock and i'm a huge proponent of the pitch clock but i think that there's something to be said for if you were to speed up the amount of time between pitches and it's really not just a pitch clock it's a get a hitter in the box clock too Mm -hmm. um but if you were to speed up that time it shortens the recovery time between pitches which means you can't you likely can't go maximum effort on every pitch the same way you can right now so those are the things i'd like to see first and then i would be interested in seeing what the research ends up being like in the minor leagues on shift adjustments um because I've, i've had a recent kind of um, change of heart on that. And I'll, I'll be honest, and I meant to read it yesterday, but um, Rob Arthur at Baseball Prospectus just did an article that the, the I guess the, the 20 word blurb was the depth of, of players. And I think specifically the second baseman in right field is the mm-hmm. major driving force between the reduction in batting average and balls in play. There's like two positions playing deeper than ever before. And that's, oh, sure. that that's one of them. Um, and that's, that's what's driving a lot of the loss in singles. And so, you know, the, I, I, I waver on this between the creativity of putting players where you want to put them um, versus, you know, what's for the good and the health of the game. I think those are things that are, that I'm a little bit interested in, but would like some more research on. The listeners to the podcast will, will know the, the recommendation that I've made. And I guess I'd be remiss since you brought up the strike zone and shifts not to, not to not to mention the thing that I've like suggested would help with both, and that's lowering the strike zone. Like take keep yeah. the upper part where it is and lower the strike zone just by the width of a ball, and you know put it down below the kneecap, one baseball further down, one length of a baseball further down, so that it's you know I guess I should describe that better, so that it's like one like you put a baseball at your kneecap right underneath it, that would be the strike zone. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, but I, I, I am skeptical that that would lead to a more balanced game. Um, in part, I'm not sure it would, but it would put more balls in play. I don't know if it would or it wouldn't, because I think part of the evolution of hitting, and I, I don't know. I'd be curious to get you know Jeff Albert's pretty forward thinking, right? So I'd be interested to get yeah. Jeff's take on this. But I think part of what you see with you know at least a part of part of the strikeout rate is guys are you know, are trying to get off an A swing, you know, their, mm-hmm. their best swing a lot of the time, and they're not yeah. swinging at pitches that they can't drive. And if you can't do anything with that pitch, there's not, I mean, if, if the, the value of a strikeout just for all statistical purposes, the same as, you know, a pop-up to third or a ground out to short, I don't yeah. know that that's going to change it so much as what I think what you need to do is narrow the hitting zone more 
to be able to to mm. adjust to it versus trying to expand it more. But I could be wrong. I mean, I, I, that's I would I'd be interested to see. You know, again, like we, we're in a position now where I, I really appreciate the fact that they're they're partnering with these independent leagues and that they're willing in the minor leagues right. to make some of these changes or or to try some of these things out, so that we have some research behind just behind you know these decisions as opposed to just saying ah we'll do this, it should work. You know, like like for years it was lowering the mound will be better for pitchers and all of that, and then they did research at ASMI and they're like. Really, it's not that bad. Or, or you know, if you move the rubber back, that the things are going to be terrible for pitchers. And ASMI did research, and they were like, actually, it's not. You know, I mean, you're not going to the radar gun right. reading isn't going to change the way that 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 pitches are are um, you know are are looked at. So, like, there's there's not they they don't feel like it's going to put more stress on on pitching, and they, they've done some studies on it. So I think that there's mm-hmm. just having, I mean, having some research and having some information on it would be hugely beneficial, especially when it comes to the strike zone. But that's something I would like to change in, in relatively short order. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, they can. That's one of the things that you'd think that uh, both sides would move towards. And, you know, there's so much on the table because of the CBA. My, my thinking about, like, lowering the strike zone by that bit is the fact that we just don't see sinkers anymore. You don't see I don't think sinkers. that's true. What, you don't see them like the like the classic, well, you guys had Webb here. Um, and, you know, you, you think back to like the classic sinker ballers, how many of those guys are out well, there? Well, the, you don't have pitch to contact pitchers anymore necessarily, but I think right. the Dodgers were, the Dodgers threw, I think the highest percentage of sinkers slash two seamers of any team in baseball last year. Now all their guys are throwing 98 mile an hour sinkers, but it was like mm-hmm. Dustin May, Brewster Gratterall, um, Blake Trinan, those guys. Yeah. So the one of the shifts in pitch design. I mean, can I get uber nerdy here? Absolutely. So Barton Smith, who's a, one of the one of the baseball physicists, has done a lot of work on this, and w- one of the things that they're looking at now is something called seam shifted wake, which mm. is basically yeah. like how gravity affects the ball, right? And yeah. and basically like what makes a, a two seam or, or one seam fastball sink. And so there are teams that have bought in pretty heavy on this, either by their own admission or just by you know, retrofitting the data, you can figure it out. The Dodgers are one of those. The Cubs appear to be one of those teams as well that, you know, okay. So like, so like the Cubs are are right there on the Cardinals heels. Right. But how many, Mm -hmm. how many strikeout guys do they have in their rotation? I mean, they're running out Kyle Hendricks, Zach Davies, you know, Trevor Williams, right? Like those, those aren't, those aren't, those are, those are guys that are, are pitch to contact pitchers. And I realize a part of that is because, Hey, listen, we're not going to spend any money. So this is going to be the most efficient way to do it. And we should have a pretty good infield defense. So, okay, fine. That's good. Like that's, that to me is creative and different and not mm-hmm. playing the same game that everybody else is. And that's fine. And so far it's worked okay for them. But I think that there's, I think you're starting to see a shift to more variety because I think teams are recognizing the, the benefits to not necessarily being uh, homogenous in what they, what they create. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you picked, you kind of cherry picked the Dodgers who happen to be the best at a lot of things. Well, but they also were throwing the most of it. So I, I don't right. want, you know, like, I mean, I think that that it was a pretty significant shift from yeah. 2019 to 2020 in the number of two seamers that they were throwing. So it gets your attention there. So, and yeah, as so much as we never talk about baseball being a follow the leader sport, you know, that's always the NFL is a copycat sport, right? But right. baseball is a follow the leader sport too. 
Absolutely. So the Dodgers are going to do it and they're going to have success. All of a sudden, everybody else is going to be like, what are they doing here? Let's follow it. You know, it's the same with the Astros. Like, well, nobody's bringing, banging out trash cans, but well, at least we hope. <laughs> but, but, you know, the Astros started figuring out how to get guys to manage the strike zone better and reduce right. chase, right? And so those kind of things started to be what focused with other teams. The Dodgers do that very well too. And so now you're seeing either the lieutenants from the Dodgers move to other organizations. And so you see it in like San Francisco and whatnot, or you see teams that are studying what the Dodgers are doing and what they've done well and what Houston has done well. And they've Mm -hmm. tried to implement that into their own plan. And so I think it's, you know, it's, it's all, if somebody has success, if somebody goes out and throws five sinker ballers, traditional sinker ballers, and they get seven innings to start, and like all of a sudden they figure out, hey, these guys have, you know, even with two pitches, these guys can get through an order three times because they do this, this, and this in sequencing. In a year and a half, you're going to have five teams doing the same thing. So, right. Yeah. 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 That's, it's a good example. I mean, run prevention um, was a thing for a while there. I mean, you think back to like 15, right? The Cardinals mm-hmm. had this 100 win, great run prevention team, not a whole lot of run generation team, but they had pitchers who put the ball in play and they had a superb defense um, that turned it into outs. And then the next year, the Cubs were remarkable run prevention team. I mean, part of it was they, they had Hayward, just like the Cardinals had Hayward in 15. Um, but that, that was a big part of their ability to win a championship was, you know, a willingness to put some balls in play. They had some strikeout, obviously. but you know, just this notion that you could, you could prevent a run um, as well as score a run. And they ultimately ended up doing the same thing. And now, and you saw that kind of like, you're right, spread. Um, well, and then we became teams that could also generate a lot of runs with, you know, with approaches and, and that, like you're talking about, taking an A swing at every count. I mean, I think the Moneyball 2.0, and and this even, you know, so the, there's a really good book on kind of the the nation stages of this defensive revol- revolution that Travis Sawchuk wrote called Big Data Baseball, and it's about yep. when the Pirates you know, basically like the the inspiration to it is the Pirates can't get over the the hump and Clint Hurdle and Neil Huntington realize that their jobs are on the line and they get together and they're like, okay, we need to go, we need to buy into this. And so they start shifting more. They, they start looking for sinker ballers, right? Like that, that's where they go out and trade yep. for AJ Burnett. Uh, catcher framing becomes a big thing like for them. And so like they trade for Russ Martin and like, there's all these things that kind of go, go into it. Right. That, that help to, um, to explain it or not Russ Martin, Francisco Cervelli, right? That's who they, they end up with. So, so like they, mm-hmm. they, there's all of this, but, but I think you can make the argument that over the last, certainly the last 11 or 12 years, maybe a little bit longer than that, that most of the application of data has been focused on run prevention versus, versus um, run creation. And yes. I think you see it in like if if you're to go and start comparing numbers, you know, the the context neutral statistics. So I like plus statistics, right? The ones like the mm-hmm. where 100 is league average, and it helps you compare to year and to year a little bit better. But look at the degradation in office at a position like first base. And look at how much more emphasis there's being put on athleticism at that position because they're the lone defender on the right side of the field for a lot of time versus offense. Look at how many teams are now using the DH. I mean, literally a job that's supposed to be hitter 
that they're mm-hmm. using to cycle players through and rest them. They're giving right. that up, right? They're they're shifting at a, at a, and maybe this is coming back a little bit, but they're they're trying to create run prevention strategies that that and 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 they're pitching for strikeouts, you know. All of the the developments over the last dozen or so years have been focused on that. And I think a lot of the reason why is because it's cheaper. It's a lot harder to sell in arbitration and free agency that like, hey, this guy is going to win you X amount of ball games a year because he's a really good glove. So you're always going to get a premium on that, whereas you have, you know, 150 years almost of baseball offensive statistics that line up pretty well that you can get a good tell on. And, and that's been the the basis for most, you know, say arbitration cases and free agency has been on, on, you know, first home runs and RBIs and batting average and now home, well, maybe even a little less home run, but slugging percentage on base percentage, uh, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things. So, and I, and I think that to me more than anything has been that lack of balance there has probably been the greatest detriment in terms of, of building is that all of the focus is on becoming more efficient defensively instead of trying to put together offenses that are really good. If somebody puts together a really good offense with a decent pitching staff and an okay defense and wins, I wonder if you see it shift, but everybody's tried to be the 2015 Royals now without the speed element, you know? And so like, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of changes that have happened in that regard that are um, that have helped to lead us to this point. It's interesting when we have conversations like this and, and I'm sure like changes to the game come up every so often on the show that you do on MLB network radio, maybe, you know, once a week, right. Not once a day, possibly. (laughs) When we have conversations like this, is that good for the game or does it spend too much time focusing on what the game is not? That's always something that captures like at one point in time and down in Florida, they had a, they had a gathering with the managers and the commissioner came by and this was three, four years ago. And I asked Rob Manfred, you know, what does it say when spring training is beginning and the commissioner's statements in interviews have been all about the improvements the game needs. <laughs> like it's the most optimistic time in the sport is spring when everybody still has a chance and people are happy to have baseball back. And so many of his voluntary comments were about what the game wasn't and the work and the improvements that needed. I'm like, what kind of message does that send to fans well, about the product? Think about his first interview. The first thing he did would, when he sat down with Carl Ravitch, when he got the job was talk about banning the shift. Right. So right. Like, right. So, I mean, he's clearly a tinkerer, which I, yeah. I don't, I don't think it's all bad because I, like that. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, I think, I mean, there's some of it that I'm, I'm not necessarily keen on personally, but we also were very stayed for a long period of time. We just talked about how long it's been since they adjusted the strike zone. Right. So, yeah. so, you know, there were a lot of things that were, that, you know, led you to have a little bit more hope in the Bud Selig era. You know, he was, what was his big thing? Hope and faith, right. For all the teams. Um, right. But things like the biggest change on the field was replay. And remember how it was, um, you know, like we were kind of dragged, kept kicking and screaming. And first of all, we were dragged in in the middle of the season for home runs. Like it was like just completely right. a balance in August. All of a sudden they could replay home runs, but like the way that that evolved. And so, from a standpoint of, you know, there are, you can always improve the game. 
I think that there probably are some some things that absolutely could be changed. From a messaging standpoint, you're right. We, we as the baseball media and and those who cover it tend to be pretty terrible at this. And and it it irritates me. I mean, I think there are a number of national broadcasters too that that spend a lot of time talking about either how much better the game was when they played or how much better it used to be or you know, we and and, and I've had this discussion with with other people with colleagues of ours and friends of ours about this who who will go down this road and it's like, listen, like I loved the 80s baseball because that's the baseball that I grew up with. It doesn't mean that it's better or worse. It's just that's the baseball I grew up with. I loved, you know, the Eric Davis, Daryl Strawberry, you know, like the the Royals Cardinals teams like and then you'd have a couple of slugging squads and like like I liked that that style of play because that's what I grew up with and we're always going to be kind of drawn to that I think people who are probably a little bit younger than us are probably more attuned to the you know to the the dingers and and you know uh, you know, punt on defense a little bit era that was the, the, the steroid era, right? Like, you know, so, so like, I think that there's, I think there, it all is in the eye of the beholder and the people and people before us love, you know, closed stances and first pitch contact. Right. So like there, there's, there's all of these things come together that you always want baseball to be what you remember. And, and I was, you know, I grew up in Chicago and there's a great radio station there called WXRT, which is, um, you know, the triple A station, right. Adult alternative and so they've always had like the world's deepest playlist right and when Mm -hmm. i was growing up you know like i I was in my my teens and and i was like we'd talk to like my uncle's friends i'd be like yeah i listen to xrt a lot and they'd always be like man you should have listened to it 10 years ago and like that stuff still happens now right so like so like we we're always like we always talk about baseball that same way and that it's man you should have been here during that era it was really great was it was it go back and watch, go back and watch the 23, 22 game, right? Like I tried to watch that during quarantine last year when MLB network ran it. And it's mm-hmm. like close stances and, you know, no offense, Randy Lurch, but Randy Lurch throwing up 75 mile an hour pies, you know, like there's like, go back and watch Seaver's no hitter. And they're talking about Seaver's slider being so good on the broadcast. And listen, they're talking about one of the great pitchers of all time. But just from, you know, the velocity is different now. The pitch shapes are different now. Things evolve and change. And so mm-hmm. like, I think we need to be far more mindful of that. This is going to be the baseball that your son remembers. And in 20 years, he's going to complain about the game the way we're complaining about it now, you know? Yeah, yeah. He digests or yeah, he digests baseball a little differently because he does it in highlights. I mean, he'll watch some full games, but you know, he'd rather be out playing it just like we probably were. Um, well, let, but let's we talk were, about that for a second. Cause I think that's really interesting. I mean, that that's the big thing, right? Is like, how do you get baseball into the hands of younger in, mm-hmm. in the hands of, or how do you get them to consume more baseball? Right. So right. I don't have kids, so I don't have a, a great feel for it. I know I've, I've got an eight year old baseball mad nephew who liked it. And then his dad took him to a game and it unlocked everything probably three years ago. And so he yeah. wakes up every morning and he puts on the MLB app and he watches highlights and he watches, yeah. you know, he wants to see, you know, his favorite players. Like he'll watch parts of a game with his dad or watch parts of it, but, but like nobody actually sits down and uh, other than those of us that cover it, very few people watch every pitch locked in beginning to end, right? Like you, 
you're pitching changes, you're flipping channels, right? You're going to get a sandwich. If you miss a half inning, it's not a big deal. You're, you maybe got it on in the background and you hear, you know, oh, all of a sudden there's second and third, right? And like, okay, now I'm going to pay attention. So like, like how, how that evolves and how we get that consumed, get more baseball content consumed by younger people is certainly one of the pushes. And the problem is that we don't have a good plan for it yet because I don't think we fully understand not necessarily what the trends are with young people in it, but how to best get it into their hands under some of the arcane rules that we have to play under right now. The the thing that drew me to baseball and still does is that anticipation of a great play, right? Yeah. Like I'm willing to watch a little bit for the possibility of a great play. That tension is what has always really um, been of interest to me, really brought me to the game. Um, so like my fondness for the game is somewhat built on the fact that you wait for the moment of greatness. Mm -hmm. My son's is different. He wants to know what's going to happen. And the way to do that is to, you know, like quick pitch on MLB network was his gateway to this notion where that I would, he would rather watch that know that he's going to get some highlights of the game. And then that evolved into, wait a minute, I can go and find the highlights or get an alert to a highlight that just happened for a team I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. And so that's, he has it set up that way, where if something happens with his favorite team or something happens with the Cardinals um, that is of interest, or like you said, specific players, he'll get an alert. Hey, this just happened. And he'll be like, oh man, I want to watch that and probably watch it 12 times. Um, but he doesn't want to wade through the game for the potential of that, which is a thing, which is an interesting way to take on the sport. It is. And it's, it's a far, probably more efficient way to take on the mm -hmm. sport. Is that, is that the right? I mean, I think part mm -hmm. of it is in, and I had, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but our, our TV broadcaster, Steve Rathume is a, a, a good friend. And we were talking about this early in the season and he said, man, he's like, we've got to do something about the time of games. And I realize that people are always, there, there's a large contingent that screams at media members for talking about this. And the only people that want the game shorter are broadcasters and, and writers because they want to go home quicker. And that's not what it is. We want people to be able to consume more baseball. And yeah. Bert's point was nobody has four hours a night to dedicate to a game. I mean, that's think about the way you really consume baseball that we really consume baseball, right? As somebody who I love what you said about the anticipation. That's a lot of it, right? Is like, you're hoping something good happens like that energy and excitement of it. That's what, what builds for me. It's a little bit like soccer in that regard, right? You're waiting, waiting, waiting for that, for that big burst. Right. And so, yeah. So, I mean, like, like that anticipation is great, but like in the way we consume it, it's not, it's it's a little bit different and it's a lot easier to buy into waiting for those moments if you can do it over the course of two and a half hours as opposed to three and a half hours or, or you know like the 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 average time of game now is what like 308 right like that i mean come on like you know when we were kids it was and i hate to go back in the day but you know here, here i've just complained about people who go back in the day and i'm going to do it but like games are two hours and 40 minutes like i think there's a significant difference in that and especially if we're dealing with people who have far more compacted schedules and kids with, you know, a lot more activities and a ton of stuff to do. And like, I don't know how you dedicate if, if I weren't working, covering baseball, there's no way I could commit three hours a night to watching a game of my favorite sport for six months. It's just, it's virtually impossible. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, some people keep it on in the background. A, a quick aside, like this is real inside baseball, but maybe some listener will get a kick out of it. When the game ends, doesn't change when I get to go home. Yeah. You know, like if it's a four-hour game or a two-hour and 30-minute game, I'm likely done with work at the same time. It mm-hmm. just changes how how much how much runway I have to deadline. Um, you know, some of these games out here in Arizona – uh, happen after deadline. So the game is over and technically I could leave, I guess, because, um, because my deadline's passed. I filed my story with that final out. So, um, while we've kind of talked about, it, I wanted to ask you this, like what has captured your imagination that we've talked a lot about, like, all right, what does baseball need to do? What changes could be possible? What has captured your imagination in 2021 baseball? What, what has really, I mean, you, you pay as much attention to the entire league as anybody I know, and you have a really good feel for the pulse of it. Tell me something amazing about baseball. Ronald Acuna Jr. Can I just, Ronald Acuna Jr.? Like, I'll just watch highlights of sure. him all day. Like, <laughs> watch anything that that guy does, right? So that would be one. I mean, I, I think the energy and athleticism from younger players um, and specifically from position players, I think that to me is is really compelling. Um, there was an interesting Joey Votto quote um, today in in uh, Trent Rosecrans article about but Votto sat in and did like four innings uh, on Reds radio yesterday. Um, you know, the, the broadcasters are still ro- working remotely, and he was going through a workout at, uh, in Cincinnati and went up and did a few innings with him and actually did some play by play too. Um, But one of the things he said was that he was having the discussion with Wade Miley the other day about how they got into the league. It was a chess match and now it's more like a heavyweight fight. And I think that to me is really, I I mean, that's the part of that. We do a really lousy job of selling is that, okay. So we, and, and, and listen, like I'm, Clearly, I'm as guilty of it as everybody because we just spent 20 minutes talking about all these things that you change. Like, this is a power game, and it has been for the last decade, both from the hitters and the pitcher standpoint. And we need to embrace the power to some degree. And so, whether it be increasing fastball velocities or increasing power for hitters or you know increasing athleticism, these these extremes, I think in in looking at baseball in 2021 those are things that are exciting um and those are things that i think we that that you know i think make the game fun i mean it's we were talking before last night i was excited to see oviedo because i knew he had big stuff i knew what the Mm -hmm. data said about him like i also knew he had command problems but but like i wanted to see what it looked like and like I want to see those big power guys. I want to see guys with power breaking balls. I want to see guys who, you know, hit homers and doubles and and sock a few dingers and whatnot. And I want to see how they combat this high velocity era. And and I that to me I think is really compelling. And so I mean that it's a long answer, I guess, to to what could be a, a shorter question, but that's part of what I love is just the, the, you know, the battles still. I, I mean, like for all those things that we talked about, like in all of this, and, and somebody said this to me the other day, they said, you know, like all these things are going on. It still seem like you really love baseball. And I do like, I think, I think the game is going to continue to evolve, you know? And so well, who's to say that it, it I mean, who's to say that it, it's not better than it was when we were kids. Well, we, we have more video now than we did then. Um, yeah. You know, so we have our memories of that, but it's also just, I mean, I think it's still an exciting game in that, that, you know, like now anybody can change it with one swing. Yeah. You remember in 2016 game seven, Dexter Fowler hits that leadoff home run yeah. 
and pirouettes around first base. Uh And it was like, that is fantastic because it was game seven. The Cubs hadn't won in 108 gajillion years or whatever, a World Series. That was his personality fit the you go, we go kind of notion, right? There was a lot there. And I didn't hear anyone complain about that pirouette. Not one person. Like, did you? Uh, no, I didn't. But it was also Game 7 of the World Series. So I think, I mean, right. I, I also don't think that there are nearly as many people complaining about personality being shown and the excitement and energy that some of these young younger players are bringing on a nightly basis. Um, yeah. Nearly as much as I think it's just a lazy trope of bad sports media. You know, totally agree. It it's so we just outlined all the time the the reasons why it's it's you know tough for fans to, to sit down for three hours and watch a game that yeah. applies to sports talk show hosts too. So like, <laughs> you, they're not going to lock in for three hours a night. It's easier to cover the NFL. It's once a week, right? You commit three hours right. on a Sunday to making hot takes about you know who blew coverage in the cover two, whereas this is you know it's, Earl Weaver said this ain't football. We do it every day, and so what people do is they tend to hold on to these like these tired narratives for a long period of time because it's like, well, this is the way I'm going to talk about baseball and. Frankly, I think a lot of that is BS. So, like, right. I wish they'd, you know, stop being a little bit lazy in that. And, you know, like, we could get rid of uh, – I think we need to embrace less debate and, and you know, just kind of have some more thoughtful conversations about this stuff. Yeah. And what gets me is, like, we have all these moments that we can think of in the postseason, whether it's the Fowler pirouette or, you know, for Cardinal fans, um, how David Freeze slid into third base in the 2011 World Series and that celebration he had, or his batting helmet spike. We have all these moments that in October become lasting images, not just because of the event, but because of the celebration. And they are indelible in our mind for the emotion that the player exuded at that moment of success, or in some cases in that moment of anguish, right? But mostly in success. And there is a style to those celebrations that are distinctly that player's personality, right? That we see played over and over and over again. And now I'm so glad that we're seeing it in the regular season more often. And I don't understand why we can celebrate it in the postseason, right? And use that as constant highlights and one shining moment and all this stuff for baseball. And now we see it in the in the regular season, and people go, "Oh, well, that shouldn't happen." I think I think we should really, really welcome it in the regular season because it starts to speak to the urgency of these games. And you're right. Like Earl Weaver with the, we do this every day and baseball is constant and baseball is ubiquitous and it's now back to being ubiquitous. But what some of these things, some of these moments, some of these celebrations, some of these bat flips have done is said, look, a game on Thursday between the Padres and the Brewers can have urgency and and can have that whiff and scent of October because look at how they're celebrating this moment that series between the Padres and the Dodgers early on the two series I guess yeah were remarkable baseball and if we're if the game is currently capable of that then man imagine like the October feel with in every game of a 15 game slate on june 12th that'd be awesome yeah yeah i mean like i i think you know i I think there are 
I, I think you're right on. I think for years we have suppressed the excitement and the emotion and energy that needs to happen in baseball. And I think to me, in a lot of respects, the, the, the Pied Piper of this right now to me is Tim Anderson with the White Sox, who yeah. I don't know how, if you've ever spent any time talking to Tim. He's awesome. And it's like he is just so cool. And he brings a much more he, – he brings a mentality, I think, that that comes from other sports. You know, baseball, it was don't get too high, don't get too low. We do this every day for six months. Whereas the other sports have far fewer games. And if you know Anderson's background, he was a, a, a really good basketball player in Mississippi who came to baseball late. Um, mm. You know, almost, I think, like his senior year and then went to a JUCO and ended up being a you know, first-round pick. And – and I think that there's that urgency that comes from the, the those other sports. We're always looking for guys to play multiple sports, right? And so, like, taking that urgency from it and I think putting it together. And I think that there's another part, and this is – this was actually something that Tim Tebow said. So this was, this was a remarkable comment from Tebow. He was interviewing Kyler Murray before – must have been the Big 12 championship game. You know, Murray at that point had been – now the Arizona Cardinals – uh, quarterback, um, but had been the the Oakland Athletics first round pick the year before he'd been a, a two way star at Oklahoma, and th- he was taken in the first round there before all of a sudden he became this like legitimate pro prospect. And mm-hmm. Tebow was playing in the minor leagues for the Mets at the time and was interviewing him, and he was asking him about the difference between baseball and football. And and Tebow did a poor job in the interview, but he said something that was really insightful in that. He said, the thing I love about baseball is that I get a chance to compete every day. He's like, whereas football, it's like that, the event, right? Like, and and that, but baseball, I get a chance to compete every day. And that really resonated with me. And it looked like it resonated with Murray, who's a pretty soft-spoken guy in general. And he was kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's it. And that's the difference is that it's not the pomp and circumstance of it, but it's the competition every day and so seeing guys get that emotion and get fired up and you know last night even Daniel Ponce de Leon like mm-hmm. getting the save and like getting out of a jam at a big spot with the tying runs on base and like getting a tough hitter like showing emotion on a game on May 28th is freaking great and it's great for mm-hmm. baseball because we as fans have that energy when we go to a game or watch a game on TV, regardless of when, when it is in the season, because we care about our team winning and losing. Why shouldn't the players react the same way? And why shouldn't we take our cue from them? I mean, I, I like baseball players that are excited about playing baseball. We talked about how, you know, Nolan Arenado's home run. I mean, he gave a fist pump and a thrill as he rounded first base on that. He like, won a huge at bat. It was eight pitches deep. Like that's like, that's head to head competition that he won. Amazing. Yeah. He didn't put his head down and trot around the bases quickly because it was May and it was a game against a team that had lost 11 consecutive. He let it go. Yeah. Um, but but I, I want to say it. like, if you're that guy yeah. though, you know, like you also yeah. have the guy who will head in, in St. Louis, who will just put his head down and run around the bases. Right. And ball, right. Ball, but that's him who, but whose play, he lets his play speak, which, by the way, Goldschmidt, like, you could make a case. He nearly won them the game by himself last night. The run ended up not counting, but, like, hustling on an overthrow at first when the first baseman was late to react to it, noticing mm-hmm. that, that when he's at second with one out that nobody is paying attention to him and stealing third. Like, yeah. some huge, like, very typical Paul Goldschmidt moments. But, like, that's the guy that hits that ball and just puts his head down and runs around the bases. That's fine, too. We need those guys as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's true to his personality. He's being who he is and other guys are being who they are. And that's fine. There's not the restrictor plates on personality and let it go. It's fine. Whoever you are, just, just enjoy it. Right. Yeah. I'd be remiss not to ask you here about your impressions of the Cardinals. The, the Diamondbacks have lost 12 consecutive as we're recording oh, this. Oh, thanks for bringing that up. Well, I mean, if it means anything, the Cardinals are 10-0 and against the Rockies, Pirates, and now Diamondbacks. So that's like, you know, almost half of their wins, uh, about 30% of their win, more than 30% of their wins at the moment. So um, yeah, what, what do you make of them? You've watched from afar. You, you, you speak weekly with Mike Schilt on your radio show. Um, so you probably get a sense of the ebb and flow of the Cardinals season. Yeah. So a <clears throat> um, couple things, and, and I think it's really interesting in, in watching. So the one thing, one thing I really wanted to watch with them the, in this series was their bullpen because the pen had, I think walked a higher percentage of hitters than any other team in baseball. I think um, yes. only Kansas city is really even close to them. And and it's not all that close. Like Kansas city it's in second is far closer to Cincinnati in third than, than they are to the Cardinals in first. Um, but the premium stuff that they were throwing out there and they, they've thrown strikes for the most part, the, the first two games of the series. Um, I think that's interesting. And they, they have a lot of big arms there. Um, you know, I think that even with Arenado in the, in the lineup, um, I still feel like things feel a little thin, although the Tyler O'Neill development is really interesting to watch. I mean, he's homered in the first two games of the series and he's, um, you know, I, I think that one of the, maybe David Adler, or I can't remember who from, from MLB pointed out that he's in like the 90th percentile in, uh, both sprint speed and exit velocity yeah. or something like that, which is, that is yeah, pr- yeah, pretty intriguing. Right. And like the question was how much contact was he going to make? I, I think the question might be how much contact does he need to make to be able to have an impact? So, um, you know, I, I, I'm going to be curious to see what happens when they get healthy. I mean, they have a premium defensive center fielder in Bader. Um, you know, Carlson's not really hitting for power right now, although it seems like he's done a better job of closing up some of the holes that he had in the strike zone. Um, and he certainly has a, he doesn't chase very much. He didn't last year either, which I think is really encouraging. But, you know, mm-hmm. what is his development path going to be like, I think is interesting. Like, I th- and and I don't really have a great sense for the rotation overall because I think you see some good starts from guys, but um, you know I don't think outside of Flaherty you really have somebody that you know you can you know lock down and think okay well this guy's gonna give you you know give you seven strong innings every time out. I mean Wainwright certainly has those performances still, but I don't know that it's consistent start to start in that regard right now. So um, they're kind of an intriguing team. I, I'd be lying if I said I had a really good feel for where they are or, or who they're going to be. I think they're I think they're in an interesting race. I mean I really like Milwaukee's team. I thought the the Willie Adamas trade was a, just a really great stroke. I think um, that guy is better than people realize like he's a really Uh good player and i think getting he for whatever reason he had a hell of a time hitting at the drop and i think you're going to see his numbers perk up he's young he's a he's a a a big personality and a and a really great clubhouse guy from what i understand um and so i think he's going to fit in really well in milwaukee and then they have two just absolutely dominant starters at the front end and a pretty good third one in peralta so um yeah 
And so I think they're interesting. I'm kind of curious to see, you know, will the Cubs swoon in June? You know, that's always that's always kind of the question with the Cubs, right? Is like, how real is this? Um, or at least historically has been the question with the Cubs. I shouldn't say that's been the case over the last, you know, seven years or so. But yeah, um, yeah. but I think that that's kind of interesting. So I don't know that they that they separate themselves really that much from the rest of the group, but. But listen, I think, you know, Goldschmidt's numbers are going to end up looking pretty good at the end of the year. I think Arenado, clearly you've seen him now. Like, I know you, you'd watched him plenty before, but like that guy's yeah. unbelievable. Like he's yeah. just one of the best players in the game. And and um, I, I hope that there's an appreciation for how good he is on both sides of the ball. Because we spent all that time talking about the home run last night. We didn't spend any time talking about the double play that he turned where – like which saved Oviedo. Oh, yeah. oh man. I mean, first and second, one out, grounder to third, takes it right to the bag and like pushes off the bag and makes a perfect throw to first. Like he just he makes those plays. He he works so hard on making those plays look routine. He's yeah. incredible. And so I I think, you know, there's a lot of things to like about where the Cardinals are at in, you know, I think what is a pretty tough division with those three. And, you know, I, like Cincinnati, I can't quite figure out. Like I'm a little bit surprised that their offense has been as robust as it, it's been to this mm-hmm. point. And I wonder if there's – because they, they just hadn't been good the last couple of years. But, yeah. you know, they're you're kind of like just outside the top ten in like most of the categories and the top of their order especially is – really really good um you know and 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 that's i say that before you know suarez goes in the leadoff spot that suarez is going to get going at some point i mean i think we all know that suarez is pretty pretty darn good pitcher uh, or good, pretty darn good hitter their pitcher yeah. pitchers are are you know I, I like some of the rotation pieces if they can get castillo going in the right direction they become a mm-hmm. little bit more interesting but um you know i don't think it's a listen i think there's two really good teams in the national league you know, I think this is the Dodgers and the Padres, and then there's this pack of teams that are kind of behind it. And I think, you know, the Cardinals are certainly in that pack. I, uh, I've seen Arenado practice that play so many times, and even at a distance, watched him do it at spring training. I saw him do it, taking ground balls between innings yeah. of a spring training game, um, where he'll work on that precise play. Um, and it was watching that maybe a few years ago when he was with the Rockies um, that it kind of caught my eye as to like, oh, I kind of maybe maybe I get a sense as to why Arenado's so good. And it's not just the practice part, but that he looks like so many shortstops of the, that we watched, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago with the jump throws and the things that shortstops were doing. Um, he's just moved them over to third base and said, why can't I have the range of a shortstop? Why can't I throw on the run like that? Why can't I make the aggressive play like they do? I, I mean, he's he plays third base like we watched yeah. so many incredible tall shortstops play. Really, really interesting legacy that Troy Tulowitzki left there. You know, I mean, he, he plays third base like Tulo played short. And by extension, Trevor Story in Colorado plays short a lot like Tulo did. Everything's played on the run, right? And Tulo used to get criticized for that by scouts and by evaluators. But if you think about it, the way that they're doing it is they're they're in rhythm constantly and their footwork is constantly moving them towards the base, which is what you listen to good infield instructors talk about. And like, you need to have good footwork to make good throws. And you watch those guys play and like, they're constantly in motion. And yeah, you're right. I mean, he's, he, he plays, I mean, there's, 
that's why they leave Malone on the left side of an infield, right? Like, is he can yeah. cover more ground than most other guys can, and he makes the play to the to the line like you know nobody's business. I mean, he's you know, he's incredible, and that I, I want I, you know I would love to sit down with him and Matt Chapman of the A's yeah. and, and yeah. ask them a little bit about what they did in high school. I've talked to Chapman about his pregame routine before, which is pretty intricate in terms of what he does to get ready defensively on a given night. But I'm re- I would be really curious to know how much of that was imparted to them because they were high school teammates and how much came from that or them pushing each other or, or what it was that did it for both of them because because they prepare very similarly. And maybe it's just all great players prepare that way. I'm talking with Arenado and kind of retracing his steps and talked a lot about how he came with um, some knowledge of how to do it. And then it really crystallized in the minors Mm -hmm. and he, he found coaches who could obviously spend time um, working with him. And I got to talk to some of those coaches who watched it and like the routine that they set up. Um, um, So maybe, maybe it's the work ethic that comes from the high school and then the drills that are introduced to kind of offer that polish as a pro. Or maybe it's just coincidental that they both happen to be playing at the same high school and they just happen to be really possible. Way. Or, you know, that's probably right. most likely, but, but at any rate. Or it's the fact that they just happen to play the same game over again in the same neighborhood against the same kids yeah. and they were that yeah. competitive. And, yeah. 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 I mean, well, I mean, that's the, that's the really fun part of Arenado, like between innings, right. Taking grounders and that it looks like he looks like the kid that's playing, that's tossing the tennis ball against the garage, <laughs> making that play all the time. Right. Like he's the joy that he has in making that play is like, it's very pure. Yeah, that was that was something in that at bat, and I want to close up our conversation, you know, and ask you about this project that you're working on too. But you know, we talked about the eight pitch at bat and the home run, and you know, it's this the the Arenado moments of that game have kind of become the I guess the thread of this podcast um, because you see his personality come out in these things, mm-hmm. and that is part of what has ma- what makes the game so great. And also, he does capture that sustained tension, right? Don't you want to watch yeah. a three-hour game because you might see Nolan Arenado make a play at third base that no one else has? And that game had that. I mean, it was a three-hour, 20-minute game. It had so many walks. It had stretches where there wasn't a ball in play. But there was that moment. There were two moments where you were rewarded by something that Nolan Arenado did that you went, what? And you look at the dugout after the home run. And they were like, how did that happen? Who does that? Yeah. Who hits that pitch out? And then you look at uh, Paul Golds or no, uh, Johan Oviedo on that double play ball. Did you see he fell on his back to get out of the way? Yeah. Then realized he was never in any – he was never in the way. And then just couldn't stop pumping his fist for the get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah. He was, he, was on, he was flat on his back as he started doing it. I mean, those kind of moments, you know, those, that's – to me – and, you know, my son will digest that in the highlights and he'll get it on demand and he'll watch it and be amazed by it because Arenado's long been his favorite player. But you and I got rewarded for watching it because we were into the 30 minutes beforehand. And right. so we had invested some time and tension into it. And we also saw it develop, which to your point about like how he looks like the kid, you know, even between innings is in the middle of that at bat. He stepped out. And it was clear he did not care who was watching. And he went through like, okay, I got to get my base back. I got to get upright. Mm-hmm. Like it was like he went through this checklist that he would do in a cage in a T drill. 
and just kind of reset himself. Yeah. And then got back in. I, I was so struck by that. Like that he just, okay, I'm, I'm in, I'm in my kitchen swinging a ladle and I'm just going to get this. Okay. I'm ready. And then he gets back in. I, I just, I was really struck by that. Like how he took that moment and he just, that was him. Yeah. You know, he was, he was always thinking about hitting and always thinking about, you know, what's that find your center that we get from animated cartoons. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was like, I'm going to find my center. I think, I think there was the, the, the other part that you hit on there is, is, you know, okay, well there weren't, you know, a lot of balls in play and all that, but there was a lot of tension in last night's game. Last night was actually an exciting yeah. game, you know? And so for all the people who complain about, about, you know, Oh, there's not enough balls in play and the watch and strikeouts and all that. And it's like, like if you watch the game and you watch the head-to-head competition that was last night, I mean there was a lot of excitement. I mean, the Diamondbacks had make who have. I mean, listen, you pointed out they lost twelve in a row, right? They're pushing. They're they're they need to snap this losing streak so badly, right? And they're they're you know ending up with innings with tons of guys on base, and you know there's tension in every moment in that game, and there was really you know. Cardinals get four in the first, right? And Oviedo starts putting guys on on the bottom of the first, and you're like, okay, this is going to be one of those days. And that, to me, is exciting. So, you know, mm-hmm. for all the talk about, oh, walks and strikeouts and all of this, and how to, oh, it's only the three true outcomes and all of that, well, bull. Like, that was an exciting game. The walks, the strikeouts in key spots, the, you know, the, there were only two homers, but, like, the the extra base hits, like, those things – made it exciting because there were opportunities for a team to win. And then there were those, you know, little moments inside those, those competitive one-on-one at bats. I mean, that's, that's part of baseball too. It's, you know, the, the one-on-one battle in a team concept, I think is what makes it so unique. You know, it's like combining tennis and basketball. That's well put. And Lou Gehrig day is coming up and you have a project there at MLB network radio that is part of the celebration of Lou Gehrig Day and awareness of ALS. What is what can people expect from that, and what to look forward to? Yeah, uh, Wednesday. So uh, Wednesday at one o'clock Eastern, so so noon Central. We'll be running an, an hour long special um, that that's hosted by by uh, John Shambi. Um, the uh, ESPN and, and Cubs television play by play broadcaster and myself for where we're going to talk to a lot of people about how ALS has impacted their lives inside the game. So we're going to talk to Stephen Piscotty. Obviously that's a huge story. I mean, Cardinal fans, I think know that one pretty well. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he lost his mom a couple of years ago to that. Um, you know, Jake, uh, Nottingham with the the Mariners, um, who lost both a grandmother and an aunt to ALS. Um, Sam Hilliard of the Rockies, whose dad is currently, um, you know, suffering from ALS. And this is a really personal charity to for Boog too. And um, you know, John is a really really good friend. He's my wife's favorite broadcaster. She absolutely adores Boog. And if you spent two minutes with the guy, you can understand why he's just a prince of a human. But his best friend growing up, Tim Shee. Um, succumbed to ALS in his thirties. And what Boog's charity project main street does is it, it, it's not about necessarily raising research and, and, and raising money for research and to find a cure. Although that's certainly something that everybody wants, but the, the, what he tries to do is raise funds to, to help families who have an ALS patient 
so you know things like building ramps or getting the getting an eye reader to help um you know people um you know who who've lost the, the ability to speak to help them communicate or um you know a wheelchair or help them pay bills you know like the the amount of money that has to come out of pocket even if you have good insurance if you have ALS is astronomical and that's what project main street does so um, yeah. And, uh, Boog is like the, what you see on, you know, on an ESPN broadcast or here on ESPN radio, or if you're, you, if you decided to take in the opposing side and watch a Cubs game, um, you know, on TV, that's who he is as a person. He's just a really caring dude. And, um, you know, like, and this is really personal for him. And so, um, it's been, it's been an emotional um, you know, a couple of days recording. In fact, I'm recording with Piscotty just after we finish this. Um, you know, Jake Nottingham, Jacob Nottingham, talking about you know his family and and the impact it had on his dad losing you know his dad losing both his mom and his sister to ALS, his only sister, um, and how prevalent this disease is when we don't necessarily think about it that way, and. You know, and how important it is to baseball. I mean, it bears the name of one of its greatest players in in Lou Gehrig, and I think it's you know Sam Kennedy with the Red Sox, Derek Hall with the Diamondbacks, are the CEO of both of those organizations were two of the driving forces in getting the league to make this happen. And I I think you know those who uh, who are especially heavily involved in ALS related charities um and those who are who may have an AL, uh, a patient with ALS in their family or maybe suffering from it themselves I, I think or seem to be extremely grateful that there's going to be a day to raise awareness for it and it makes sense that that you know that baseball would do that so I think Wednesday's going to be uh, a special emotional and important day That's awesome I'm really glad you guys are doing that and the more people who hear Stephen Piscotti's story, the better. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm glad you're, you're you're getting a chance to tell the story about the people because, yeah. in the end, you know, all that we've talked about here, you know, about some of the 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 things that could change about baseball. One thing we hope doesn't is the people. You know, the personalities are what make this game go, and the history that it shares, and the and the kind of stage that it gives the individual stories is is remarkable. That's June 2nd, noon, St. Louis time on MLB network radio and people can catch you all the time, right. On MLB network. Don't, don't you do like a 24 hour show? Is that right? You're always on. <laughs> Feels like it. Uh, generally I'm on power alley, which is uh, nine to noon central with uh, the great Jim Duquette, the former general manager of the Mets and Orioles and sneaky, funny human being. Uh, very funny. Very, yes. very funny guy. And so um, it's a, yeah, we have a lot of fun. Jim and I have been doing that show for almost 10 years together now. And oh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's a blast. So we do that every morning and, and um, I don't sleep much during the season, Derek. Yeah, notice we're <laughs> we're doing this before dawn. We're recording this before dawn. Um, I have to uh, before we go. I have to thank you for being my companion last year. Um, you know, last year was like you mentioned an odd year. Um, a lot of driving for me. I think more than seventy six hundred miles. I figured it out. Well, many many states. Um, you know that I. I mean, I, I, a baseball season took me through Oklahoma and through West Virginia and through. A lot of the a lot of the country that I saw at street level, but you were there for me. You were you were there right right alongside me for so much of it, um, whether you knew it or not, um, because I listened to your show a lot as I drove, uh, and it was great. It was it was it was it was like having, I mean, it was like having a conversation like this. Only I couldn't participate, 
Um, but having a conversation like this, and it was good to have a friend along for those rides. Well, so thank you very much for that. Well, thanks. Thanks for saying that. That's um, that, that means a lot. Unless you're, less you're sucked for a lot of things, <laughs> but um, you know, I think it brought us closer with our audience too, because I think we all needed, right. like we, we knew, listen, it's, it was horrible having to cover a pandemic while being, you know, like as, a, as somebody who dedicated their life to getting into sports, I'm not well equipped to handle real news. Uh, and so that was, difficult at times but we also realized that people just needed a release hell i needed the release you know like just i mean it's been a stressful last you know year and a half in particular and so just to and for for most of us you know like we're all i think concerned about our own health in this and um just to be able to have some place where we could get together for a couple hours and laugh and joke around and, and worry about stuff that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things was really really cool well, you can find Mike Farron and Power Alley there at MLB Network Radio on June 2nd, Wednesday at noon St. Louis time. They'll have the Lou Gehrig special here. Tune in for that. Um, also, check out Diamondbacks Radio every so often to see what you know Mike does with his other day job. And you know, right, just, they might—they're not going to lose forever. So, and they got some compelling talent. And also, there might be a player there that maybe the Cardinals make a phone call on around the trade deadline. So. Then I'll have to have you back to to talk all about former Cardinals pitcher David Peralta. <laughs> I love David. I, I, can I get, can I share a quick David story that he told sure, told sure. me in spring yeah. training? So David David's story, maybe the Cardinal fans may know. Minor league pitcher blew out his shoulder, went back to Venezuela, started playing in the industrial leagues there, which are like the lowest levels of independent ball, and then came to the states to play indie ball as an outfielder, and like literally had to work at a McDonald's right to be able to get enough money to be able to drive to like. To, I, I can't remember which, Laredo, Texas, I think, or whatever. So he was telling me the story that he was, I think he was, this was the year he was playing in Wichita in the American Association, that he um, he learned that one of the, the things that they had at the ballpark was when you hit a home run, that whoever hit the home run, hit home plate, took their helmet off and basically passed the hat around the stands for tips. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so he said, he said, so like, so he's like, oh, so all of a sudden he's like, I'm making like $200, $300 a home run. He's like, I got really motivated. You know, those guys are not making, they are making less money than most of the minor leaguers are anyway. It's probably making like, like, it, like imagine if you were a wait staff and didn't get tips. That's kind of what they, they were at. And so like, he's telling the story, it, it, just terrific. So yeah, he's, he's a really interesting guy. I, I would be sad if the Diamondbacks didn't move him, but um, things aren't trending great here right now. That, that is a great story. Well, I look forward to maybe writing it, then uh, getting a chance to ask him if uh, if he's ever wears the birds again. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you can find, again, Mike Farron there at MLB Network Radio. You can find the best podcast in baseball at stltoday.com and all of the constant Cardinals coverage there and in the pages of the Post-Dispatch. The best podcast in baseball is brought to you by Closet by Design of St. Louis. Imagine your home totally organized. Closet by Design of St. Louis can help you get organized with 40% off plus an additional 15% off and get free installation call 1-800-BY-DESIGN today that's 1-800-BY-D-E-S-I-G-N closet by design of st louis the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball you can find that at itunes rate and review it subscribe and download it i do go and i go and read the reviews mike i do oh no i do i do just to see because this is not my gig i'm i try to be a writer so i'm trying to learn like get feedback and stuff so i go and read the reviews well, that's, I mean, that's nice, but you're very good at it, too. You're, you're well, an excellent interviewer and always have been, so. Well, thanks, thanks. Well, that's a good place to end. So thank you very much for Mike. 
<laughs> That's my review. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, you can you can dissent on iTunes. <laughs> <if> you... <laughs> uh, Mike, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's always good to catch up. It's good to catch up in person and to take one of these conversations and put it on the podcast. And uh, we did not even mention once player dev. So thank you for spending this time. With me. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure, and it's great to see you. And you know, you're one of my favorite people. So it, it's uh, it's fun to be able to spend some time with you, both vir- virtually and in person. Yeah, yeah, in person in the press box. You, People think we, we really get nerdy about baseball in this and laugh a lot. Oh, boy. boy. I learn a lot every time I talk to you. So thank you very much, Mike. Thank, thank you. Stop.